those are human beings in there, and we need to help. If we solve homelessness for everybody, it benefits everybody in the country. But for some reason, you know, we resist that. California holds more than half of all unsheltered homeless people in the United States, 53%, and has the highest number of homeless encampments. That's what we're talking about today on Fill in the Blanks, because we may have half, but the rest of them are throughout the United States. Clusters of tent cities line almost every block here, but you have them in your city as well. In an effort to take aim at the issues Major cities across the United States, including L.A., Portland, Austin, Houston, San Francisco, are passing bills that will effectively ban homeless encampments from certain areas. Now, homeless advocates argue banning and sweeping homeless encampments is inhumane, doesn't solve the problem, and will ultimately create even bigger issues. To go deeper into this crisis, I am speaking with the guy. (laughs) I'm talking about Donald Whitehead, Executive Director, National Coalition for the Homeless. You've probably seen Donald Whitehead on my show before. He brings more than 20 years of experience in serving and advocating for persons experiencing homelessness to NCH, including five years experiencing homelessness himself. And he brings a unique combination of direct service to those experiencing homelessness as well as years of advocacy for systemic change to end homelessness through increased federal investment in housing and services as well as an end to policies that actually criminalize homelessness. And you're right, I said criminalize homelessness, even though there are Supreme Court decisions that say you can't do that if there are not alternatives. But it still happens. Donald, welcome. Thank you so much for coming and taking the time to do this. Thank you, Dr. Phil. Thank you so much for having me here. And thank you for elevating the issue of of homelessness. Well, it's a big issue. And I want to start out by saying something that you underline so well and personify so well, and that is that these are human beings. They're sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. They're you. You were homeless for five years. I was homeless for months as a teenager. I'm like junior varsity. You were out there for years. But I think we're both examples of the fact that this can be overcome and you can go on with your life and do things. So this situation is getting worse, not better right now. Is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement. We've seen unsheltered homelessness grow all across the country. And it's not just in urban communities like Los Angeles. Um, it's happening in rural communities. It's happening in suburban communities. And uh, we we have definitely seen an increase. And uh, that's especially unsheltered homelessness over the last five years. Let's talk about this so people understand our terminology, because if we're just going to be raw and candid about this, people in businesses, people in neighborhoods, people who take their kids to school, they don't want to walk by these encampments. Most of the time, they can't. You can't walk down the sidewalk 
because they set up tents and then they expand because they have their belongings and all of that out there and they don't smell good. They don't look good. They're oftentimes defecating on the sidewalk because they don't have facilities. They're urinating on the sidewalk. Then it gets hot out and you and I've been in these places. They smell rancid. Yes. And I say that not being judgmental, but it's just the fact. For everybody that says how unpleasant that is, imagine living in it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Absolutely. And, you know, again, and I say this often, we live in the richest country in the world. No one should have to live in those conditions. And these are many times, these are people who uh, don't want to be in that situation. I would say none of them want to be in that situation, uh, but they're forced into it. They're forced into it because of economic conditions, uh, because of the lack of treatment, uh, because of structural racism in some cases. Uh, so these are uh, underlying issues that we have to address to be able to get people so they don't have to live in that. And you're right. The more we talk about the realities, it's not, you know, some people think it's like people, you know, urban camping, if you will, that it's some kind of leisurely activity. And we know that that's far from the truth. It's it's dangerous. Um, all of the things you talked about exist. Um, and, and so we have to do better. Uh, people should not have to be forced to live like that. Okay. Now, let me play devil's advocate. I don't want anybody rolling their eyes about this and saying, first thing you did was play the race card here and say, well, some of it is structured racism. First off, what percentage of the population are people of color? So African-Americans make up about 40% of the population. They only make up uh, 13% of the general population in America. Yeah. Um, when you look at Pacific Islanders, it's a nine to one ratio. Um, if you look at Native American indigenous people, it's a three to one ratio. And the reason why structural racism is why we think that exists is that if you look at poverty, um, there there is a, a relationship to poverty uh, that changes when you talk about these people of color. So if you look at people of color, the number of homeless people, the number actually is higher than those in poverty. But for all other races, uh, white Americans, Asian Americans, uh, that number goes down. So poverty isn't the underlying factor. So it has to be uh, some of the traditional structural issues uh, that have plagued people of color for decades. Okay. And when you say structural issues, fill in the blanks for people. So, so We're on fill in the blanks, so fill in the blanks. Absolutely. So let me fill in some of the blanks there. So when we talk about structural issues, we talk about uh, the, the fact that uh, people discriminate in who they have in their housing. So in order for us to be able to create enough housing units, we have to have people that don't uh, deny people housing because of their race. We know that that still exists in this country. Um, when we started out in the 30s with housing programs, those programs uh, were not, uh, we had what, what was called redlining. And so people uh, were not able to purchase homes uh, if they were people of color or immigrants also. And that, that's changed over the centuries. Uh, some uh, people who immigrated from Ireland or um, uh, some Asian countries or other parts of Europe were considered other. And so uh, 
black people and other uh, people of color have continued to be other. And so uh, when we created housing programs like public housing, that housing was segregated at the beginning. uh, And it was actually segregated in places that were integrated already. Um, The jobs programs created in the New Deal uh, people of color were not able to access those jobs. Uh, servicemen returning from the World War, um, veterans, there were GI bills, but people of color were not able to get into those GI bills. And what what was created was uh, impoverished communities, and, and you know they are what people consider ghettos. And what happened is not only were they people not able to generate wealth. Um, and one of the, the the easiest way to generate wealth in this country is through home ownership. So if you don't own a home, you can't generate wealth. And so we have had uh, decades of disinvestment in those communities. And now they're food deserts. They don't have um, the health care facilities. Um, they don't have banks. Uh, they have predatory lenders. And so that cycle's continued. And even in the home ownership, you know, two weeks ago, in Baltimore, Maryland, there were two professors uh, at Johns Hopkins University. They were a mixed race couple. Uh, there was an appraisal of their housing um, by uh, an appraiser, of course. Uh, the first time it was the African-American woman who met the appraiser. She appra- They appraised the house uh, and she got a price. They thought it was low, so they, they took all of her identity out of the house. The white husband uh, was the person who got the house appraised, and there was a $236,000 difference. And so we know that it still exists in this country, um, and especially in communities that are, are are in the South. Yeah, and research into real estate agencies, real estate showings with couples, individuals that are African-American still reveal redlining. They're just careful about it. And and banks are still getting uh, accused. Wells Fargo just a few years ago was accused of redlining and, and paid enormous fines in Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah. So the, the, the definition of structural racism is intentional decisions made by a government or a, a, a structure um, uh, to advantage one group of people over another. Yeah. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. To break that down, we're talking about lending institutions. We're talking about mortgage companies as a lending institution. We're talking about housing. And when you think about it, your number one asset for most families is their home. That's what appreciates across time. The biggest percentage of their net worth is their home. And if you're denied the opportunity to own a home or buy a home, or buy as much of a home, or in a favorable area that's going to appreciate, then you're denied building that wealth. Exactly. And so I just wanted people to know that's what you were talking about. I mean, those are real things. They're real things. And, you know, kind of when I look at other factors, and, and, and these are things that, you know, sometimes people can write off things. We can talk about 
the over um, uh, uh, over uh, exposure of people of color in the criminal justice system. Although, you know, if you think about the crimes related to substance abuse, the levels of use are the same. However, the people who are convicted of those crimes and the length of sentences is different if you're a person of color. And, and the one that really sticks out to me is, is in healthcare. So if you look at maternal health, for instance, um, if you take a look at that issue, um, the, the death of, uh, of, of mothers and, and the death of children is the same for mothers of color with advanced degrees uh, that is at the same level of uh, women, uh, white women with less than a seventh grade education. So there's something wrong there. And uh, until we we come to grips with it, until we actually create um, actual solutions that address it, we'll always be stuck in this cycle. Um, and I think we're coming to a realization that there is a problem uh, we, we've started to talk about it a lot, but I haven't seen real solutions. I mean, things like the fair housing laws are, are really, there's no enforcement. Um, and so we have to come to grips with that. That's a very real thing. And I just wanted people to hear a nuts and bolts explanation of that. So it's not just some liberal explanation. Just do the math. It's very simple to trace and it's very real. But now, putting that aside, whether they're black, white, indigenous, whatever, we've got how many homeless people across America right now, people experiencing homelessness, how many would you say, using the most common sense definition, I, I know we get into a lot of different definitions, but the most common sense definition, how many people are experiencing homelessness? So I, I think the number is closer to 5 million. And it, yeah. it may even be higher than that, in my opinion. And this is Donald Whitehead's opinion. Um, it's really hard to quantify homelessness. Um, people are hard to find. Um, people live doubled up. And I think doubled up, if you don't have a fixed address and somebody can walk in that apartment and say you have to leave, you should be considered homeless. Right. Um, but most of the federal departments don't consider doubled up homeless. And so the numbers vary, as you say. Um, the Department of Education says alone there's 3.5 million children that are homeless. So the numbers that we see typically are 3.5 million. Sometimes we see 500 on a given night. But those are all undercounts. And I do believe that's a fundamental reason we haven't addressed this issue uh, in a way that really dramatically reduces the number because we're using numbers that don't reach the scale of the problem. So, you know, we have a Congress that's looking at creating solutions for 500,000 people when there's more like 5 million people. And, you know, um, if we don't ever raise those resources to the scale, I think we're almost there uh, in Build Back Better, the original version that had like $75 million dollars uh, for housing, I'm, I'm sorry, $25 billion for housing, $70 million for public housing alone, um, we were getting close. And that wasn't even enough, but um, we, we keep coming up with these myopic solutions. And let me say one other thing about structural racism. Um, I want to say this, that we, I'm, not, I'm not saying that everybody in America is a racist. I'm not saying that people, uh, white people in America, don't experience the same issues. And the majority of the people that are homeless are white. Um, but I'm saying that people who are white never have to experience these 
issues of discrimination based on the color of their skin. And yourself, you've been through struggles. We saw people in the, on a panel today who went through struggles. We know all kinds of people go through struggles. The difference is it's not because of the color of their skin. And the, the solutions, what, what really gets to me, I've been reading a book by Heather McGee. It's called The Sum of Us. So there, there's such a resistance to solutions that could actually help solve this problem. And those solutions would benefit everybody. They wouldn't just benefit people of color. They benefit everybody. It, it's universalism. So think of Medicaid expansion, for instance. Everybody, more people that are white need Medicaid expansion than people of color. But we've resisted doing that. Why? In, in those communities where there are hospitals closing every day. Uh, Texas, for instance, won't, won't expand Medicare, and they have more hospitals closing than anywhere in the country. It just doesn't make sense. If we, we solve homelessness for everybody, it benefits everybody in the country. We, we don't have to use, utilize the resources that we're using, but for some reason, you know, we resist that, and, and it, it just pains me to say that. Well, however they got there, however these people that are living on the streets, whether they're hopping from shelter to shelter, whether it's chronic, whether they're six months or they're six years, whether they got there through discrimination, mental illness, drug addiction, whatever it is, the solution as you say, is going to have to be universal, and it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. The biggest challenge that I scratch my head about when I'm thinking about this is you've got a big percentage that have become addicts. You've got a big percentage that are mentally ill. Mm -hmm. You've got a big percentage that are just financially disadvantaged and just simply don't have the earning power, the wherewithal, the traction to get to the point where they can get a place to live, pay the deposits for utilities, and sustain it. I mean, I'm sure there are more, and there's a lot of overlap within those, but those are three different groups that are going to need nuances to their solutions. But all of them have some things in common you can describe it a lot of different ways, but one way we've talked about it before is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The first thing you've got to do is actually meet their survival needs where they know I'm not going to freeze to death. I'm not going to starve to death. I'm not going to be murdered. I'm not going to die from the elements or whatever. I've at least got that covered. And that's why you say that it begins with getting them in a safe home. Yes. And we know that we have enough empty places in the United States to put everybody, but we don't do it. I suppose that people have the right to rent their places to whoever they want to. Does it make sense in New York City to go in and buy a hotel, rent up a whole hotel, which has been done? Mm -hmm. Did that work? They did it for a while and then they didn't. It it, it worked very well. Um, it, it not only addressed uh, many of the issues that people have, privacy for one, 
um, the ability to uh, engage multiple people at a time, uh, the, the fact that those congregate shelters are not safe when it comes to the transmission of disease. So it worked very well. It worked because it was a robust response um, and it was a, a response like we would do in any other emergency situation. And so people um, really thrived. We got to move people into some of those permanent housing units that we talked about. Um, unfortunately, though, uh, those resources were short term. Now, some communities like Denver, Colorado, uh, they actually bought those hotels. Um, other communities did that. But many communities didn't have that that foresight. And so they basically leased the hotels and then they ran out of money. Um, you know, it was a, a, a response for the pandemic and those dollars aren't available anymore. And so people are starting to go back to the streets. But it was a great instrument for people to change. Does it make better sense to go in and buy a hotel that's existing? And I'm not talking about, you know, Four Seasons. I'm talking about someplace where you can get a lot of units that fit the bill. Does it make sense to go in and buy an existing facility with a couple of hundred units in it or to build them from scratch? What makes the most sense financially? It depends on the market and the cost. I think the hotel purchase would probably be more financially feasible um, in most communities. Uh, and I also think one of the issues is that if you build that multifamily unit, it's going to take you seven or eight years. That's what I'm saying. It exactly. Takes, it's a long time. It's a long time proposition. However, if you purchase an already existing building and you make whatever kind of repairs are necessary, then you've got instant resources. And so I think that it it, it is a much better proposition um, to to go ahead and buy that that hotel. And as I said, um, the communities that had the resources and the forethought, they did go ahead and do that. In addition, the the hotel industry suffered through the pandemic as well. And many of those are kind of on the market now. And so if you take the resources that we use for uh, some of those other solutions that are not as practical, like criminalization, uh, instead of putting people in jail, because there's a cost associated with that, too, um, we should put those resources into providing housing and supportive services. If you put somebody in jail, you're talking, what, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year Absolutely. per inmate? Absolutely. That's not cheap. It's not cheap at all. And, and it's a cycle. So that person goes to jail. Now they can't get into public housing. They can't get into uh, the other housing programs like the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Uh, they can't get jobs. No one... You know, people, there's this long list I used to get of people that would hire ex-offenders uh, when I was doing direct service. I'd send them there and nobody ever got hired. Um, so, you know, it's hard to get a job. It's hard to get, um, you, you lose the opportunity to vote. I mean, you lose your connection to society. Yeah. Um, so the cost is even higher than that, you know, initial cost of jailing them. And a lot of these people that are in jail and certainly would be in jail if that model is allowed to go forward. Let's just be honest. They're in jail because they're homeless. They're loitering or because they've got nothing else to do. They default to drugs. Their crime is having nothing going for them at that point. Absolutely. It, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cascading cycle. So they get a, a loitering ticket. 
they get a fine. They don't pay the fine. Then it becomes failure to pay fine. There, there may be an interaction when they're arrested and they're, they get a resisting charge. And so it continues to mount. Just having an arrest is a, a big enough barrier. But when it becomes a felony, a lot of doors get closed to you. It's unbelievable uh, in some communities. So we don't have public bathrooms in most communities, right? So if you, you know, it's a physiological um, event that has to happen to every person in the world. So in states like Florida, if you're caught urinating in public and, you know, nobody's condoning urinating in public, but you have to urinate. You got to go. You got to go. If you get caught, you're a sex offender. And so not only <laughs> are you arrested, you've become a sex offender. And if you think it's hard to get a job with a criminal record, if you're a sex offender, you can't even go to some shelters. And so, you know, it's it's really a ridiculous, um, of, of course, we don't want anybody who's exposing themselves in public, but that's not who's getting charged with those kinds of crimes. It's somebody who's in the woods or behind a building and somebody just uh, comes upon them and, and their life is totally ruined at that point. Um, and, you know, it's very different from other kinds of It's hard to unring that bell. No, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. Okay. Now, when we're talking about these people that are living in these encampments, and most of them are in tents, what kind of money are these people collecting from the government? Are they getting some kind of relief? And if so, what is it and how much? So there are some, uh, and I would say this is certainly a minority um, that may get, you know, some food stamps. Um, others may get um, not direct cash, but they may get Medicaid um, uh, or and, and some with children may get Medicare. Um, there are some that get Social Security benefits. And then we also have veterans and some veterans will get um, a uh, a. a um, veteran uh, disability check um, at a percentage. So there are some who get resources. Most are there because they have not gotten connected to those resources. So they, they, they qualify for all of those benefits, but they haven't been connected to them. Um, so some work in day labor. So they go out and they get the temporary job and, you know, make a minimum wage. Um, some actually have full-time jobs. Uh, one study several years ago uh, found it up to 40% of the people that were homeless worked every day. And what happens with those people is they attract the predators. You know, sometimes drug dealers show up. Sometimes uh, uh, the, the loan sharks show up. Uh, they know when people get paid. And, and they victimize those people when they get those resources. One of the problems that exist here in L.A. on Skid Row is they know exactly when these people get paid. Mm -hmm. So the drug dealers from the gangs show up. They do. The day they get paid. And often it's rival gangs which are in a turf war to control that area. And they show up at the same time. And then they have conflict. Now all of these people that are living on Skid Row on the sidewalks and all get caught up in the crossfire of this, and you'll have people get shot, get stabbed, get hurt because of these warring factions that are there to control the drug trade. Exactly. But those people will get paid in the morning, and their money's gone in an hour. Yes. Because the predators swoop in there and get their money, and now they're broke until the next payday. 
And, and you know, th- therein lies another issue, and that's the issue of treatment for substance abuse or our mental health um, services, which we severely lack in this country. Um, it, and, you know, th- some of those drug dealers are so insidious. Um, what they will do is give people, you know, testers, they call them, uh, and um, – uh, expect or they'll give people the drugs prior to the check coming the day before. So they, you know, that person ends up owing a whole check. And, you know, this is, you know, this yeah. is America and this is the kind of environment that people with 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 medical issues, uh, you know, substance abuse and mental health are both medical issues. And we should be providing the resources that are necessary for people. Um, you also have people leaving the foster care system. You have children who are emancipated from foster care with no uh, survival skills, no independent living skills, and and they end up uh, in the sex trade and all kinds of other situations because we don't have a response for them. Um, we do have Section 8 vouchers that they can access, but somebody has to talk to them about them. Well, that's the thing. They age out of the system, and a lot of foster parents are loving, caring, and giving but a lot of them are assembly line also. And yes. the day that kid ages out, goodbye. No more contact. Yeah, no more contact. And that is another issue that people should understand. If for the lack of a safety net, for the lack of, if, if you or I get into some kind of situation, whether it be a health situation or a financial situation, Someone in our family would probably be there to help us through that situation. Of course. They give us a spare room or a couch or money or whatever. Most of the people in the homeless population are those people that don't have anybody. Either they've lost contact with their relatives or they're people, they're, they're people who have burned bridges. But for some reason, they don't have that safety net to fall back on. And the, the, the place that should provide that is the federal government. And uh, we just have seen a resistance, a, a lack of effort towards that. Um, and, and that's what uh, continues to perpetuate this issue. Is there a country that has this figured out? There are some European countries um, that have done a much better job. Finland is one example. And the thing about Finland is that they have a right to housing and they have the, the housing uh, uh, and supportive services, the Housing First program. The difference with their Housing First is it's Housing First for everybody. If you become homeless, you get a housing unit. And so, um, uh, and and then they attach whatever supportive services are necessary. Um, we have uh, permanent supportive housing. You have to qualify. You have to be, you have to have a disability. You have to be homeless for a year consecutively or have had four episodes in three years. So that's about 10 to 20% of the population nationally. So that's who's getting those permanent supportive housing units, which leaves 80 to 90% of the population who have to really kind of find it on their own because we, um, we, we stopped doing uh, shelter in, in most of our communities. Los Angeles really kind of cut back on shelters, and um, we, we don't have the kind of transitional housing programs um, so there, there, there's this whole, you know, the majority of people don't have a real solution. If the government steps up and say they come with $25 billion or whatever would be the dream scenario to provide permanent 
stable housing for, pick a number, 5 million homeless. This is, I know, all hypothetical and a pipe dream, but let's say that happens. What is the balance where you get away from the non-contingent situation of just giving people a house, giving people an apartment, giving people a dwelling. The antithesis of that is people that are really compromised in a dire situation having to qualify. That's not the answer, clearly. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is you just show up and we'll give you a free place to live. That seems to have a flaw in being a disincentive for people to take pride in what they're given. They have no sweat equity in it. They haven't done anything other than to be disadvantaged. How do we motivate those people where they say, okay, I've been given a break here, and by golly, I'm going to hang on to this. I'm going to make this work. This is a launch pad. This isn't a soft place to fall. This isn't a hammock. This is a place to lay my head until I can get on my feet. Sure. I think there's a number of things. So first, first one thing is that um, any of those housing units, if people do have an income source, they do have to they do have to pay into that housing. So you pay 30% of your income. Um, so people on Social Security, uh, people with minimum wage jobs, they're still paying some portion of that. But it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once you stabilize them in their housing, um, everything else kind of uh, filters up from there. So people do take pride in that housing and people do aspire uh, for, for greater levels of success. Uh, depending on how you determine that. So I think the incentive um, becomes, you know, once you put people in a community, uh, people do try to uh, to mimic or emulate what other people in that community are doing. And once you stabilize them, they'll look to be the best. People want to be the best that they can be. Uh, sometimes the barriers are so hard to overcome that they never make it there. But if we give them, you know, the opportunities uh, to stabilize themselves, they'll work on the other things. See, inertia, the tendency for bodies at rest to remain at rest. Mm -hmm. And momentum, the tendency for bodies in motion to remain in motion. If we take somebody that has just been sitting 20 hours a day in a tent on a sidewalk, which has got to be the most boring existence. Those days have to seem like weeks long. Right. But they're used to doing very little to nothing. So now we move them into a place, they're inert. They're sitting there, and it seems to me that the caseworkers are so important because it's really hard sometimes to self-start from zero. But if you've got someone there that's coming by saying, okay, look, Let's get a haircut. Let's get some decent clothes. Let's talk about what's your consequential knowledge? What is it you know how to do? What did you do before? Did you work on cars? Did you have good people skills? I mean, to really get them to start putting 
small goals in front of themselves and move. I've seen people that I've worked with that when you got them clean, you got them haircuts, you got women where they got any kind of modest wardrobe, anything where they sat taller, they stood tall, they wanted to do the next thing. Absolutely. But it just takes so little that I think they could really move. And drug treatment, the same thing. All of a sudden, they've got a place to live. They start saying, all right, I need to ask more of myself, but they need that little bit of help. How much follow-up and how much casework do these people get once they're in a stable home? Well, so permanent supportive housing is not just the housing, it's housing and services. So everything you just described is what that case manager is trying to do. Um, but they're giving the person the agency to make that decision. And and it isn't, you have to do this tomorrow. You can get there over the, a period of time. You can gradually get there. Um, and I believe that we should also do that in the shelter system. And that's what I did um, in the shelter I operated in Orlando. So, you know, I had job fairs. Um, I had recreational activities. I had motivational um, uh, segments that that happened at the shelter. So the housing first mentality doesn't have to be giving someone a house right then. It could also be looking to see what that next option is while they're in a shelter situation. So giving them uh, case management, giving them uh, all uh, kinds of things that build on their own skills, the asset building that you talked about. And, you know, that's actually what happened to me. So I, you know, uh, have been an actor in my life. I've, I've done theater. I've done a few movies. I've done a bunch of commercials uh, prior to me becoming homeless. And when I talked to my case manager and told them about that, they created a job for me that allowed me to utilize all those skills. And it, it it was so impactful that I never went back to acting or comedy or the stuff that I used to do. I stayed involved in the homeless movement. And, you know, you it, it's, it's incredibly tough to do that for everybody. But everybody has that something. They were an artist. They were a welder. They were a singer. Um, they worked in a factory. And if you do that, what you described, if you tap into whatever that skill set is, uh, and that's what case managers are doing every day. Um, they're working with people uh, within those permanent supportive housing units. And they're also providing people that have already done that. Um, I had a, a guy that I, I he became a mentor. And what he said is the reason I do this is I want people to see that they can get to the other side by seeing me do it myself. And so um, we we have a lot of programs that have those ingredients. Unfortunately, not all do, of course. Not all of the programs have the adequate supportive services to move people on. Um, but part of that, again, lies in in the, the lack of a overall full-sale government response. So instead of HHS and, and labor and all these other uh, 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 governmental agencies uh, providing resources at the same level that HUD does, we're not seeing that. If we could see that, then then what you say would be something that would be happening more regularly. How much do you see it now with people that you've gotten off the street, gotten into a stable home? How much do they actually attend day treatment for rehab? How much do they actually go to work? What are the stats on people that take initiative and go to the next level? It's hard to quantify that across the country. 
but um, I know my success rates in, in transitional and shelter were like in the 70% range. If you give people that opportunity, they'll take advantage of it. Not 100%, uh, but I, I believe that most of the programs, like permanent supportive housing, has a 90% success rate for people just staying in the housing. And if they stay in the housing, everything else is possible. Um, you know, over several years, it's still at 70%. You know, obviously, we lose some people. These are the most vulnerable people on the street. So their life expectancy is going to be a little shorter. But even four years out, people are still at the 70% range. Um, so when we provide these opportunities, the problem is we we have a really tough time finding units for people to rent, you know, all of the characters, caricatures that people see. Um, and, you know, uh, I know the young man is is really trying to do his best to help with the TikTok videos. But when we villainize people, it it really, you know, the, the caricature that's created really doesn't allow people to understand that these are like the person next door. And if we give them a, a hand up, not a handout, uh, we can really change, you know, the direction of this country. We, we, you know, once we we actually have an impact on homelessness, it impacts every other layer of society. Um, and so if we could just convince people that people are people, you and I are perfect examples. I mean, we're doing our best to give back. And and we're, you know, I see this as my ministry. I, I do this because I think I went through those things to prepare me for this. And so, you know, if people just, you know, looked at who's truly been a, a, a victim of this issue uh, and not rely on the stereotypes, we, we could really start to make some difference. Well, I'm a believer in it because I don't think I was particularly good at it, but when I was on the street, I had a job every day. And I think a lot of people out there did have a job every day. I did as well. Yeah, you know, I was young, but I was tall, so I looked old enough to have a job. But, you know, I just went up and down the street. And this was back in the 60s. There weren't so many big chain stores. There were a lot of mom and pops in downtown Kansas City. And you just go from door to door, hey, do you need any work done today? And you get a lot of no's. So you customize your pitch and say, you got a stock room that needs cleaning up? And I say, no, nah, get out of here. And then pretty soon the guy's wife said, hey, he's got a good point. Looks like a tornado went through there. Absolutely. Pretty soon you've got a job cleaning up a stock room and it lasts two or three days. Then they take you to the guy two doors down. They know and said, this kid did a really good job cleaning up my stock room. Then you're cleaning up his down there. And then pretty soon they let you sleep in the stock room at night. And then before you know it, you kind of got a little cottage industry going on. You know, you can work it out if you do. And then you take pride in it. Absolutely. And you get going. And I saw a lot of people do that. And you're right. It's kind of a contagion effect. You see your buddy and say, hey, I got a job. Get, get a job, man. I can Let me introduce you to somebody. You can help me do this. I think people want to do better. They just need that first step. And it just seems to me that what you're doing makes all the sense in the world. Mm -hmm. I think the audience today, when you and I were working together, it seemed like we put a face on this. Yes. And I know you didn't like seeing those TikTok videos, but I thought it was good to say this is less than 1%. Right. He did. But if we don't acknowledge that, 
people say we're just whitewashing this and not acknowledging that these places are stinky and that there are some dangerous characters in there. And if we acknowledge, they say, okay, you know, they're being straight up about this, but those are human beings in there and we need to help. And, you know, sometimes they're not even homeless. I mean, so when I hear people talk about like the needles and stuff on the street, we don't know who left those needles there. We don't know if they're homeless or housed or, or the, the CEO of a company, um, you know, and, and we also need to remember the origins of some of those epidemics. I mean, you know, there was no, um, it didn't happen by mistake that the opioid epidemic started. I mean, the, co- the companies that started that knew that it was going to cause addiction issues. And some of them are paying, you know, huge fines for that. But we blame the people at the other end instead of blaming the people that started that in the first place. They were targeted and victims. Yeah. And, and the crack epidemic, we know the federal government had a role in that. And, you know, what I'm saying is is those institutions should be paying reparations to uh, people that are homeless. Uh, people are forced into the issue, and the people who were responsible for that should be responsible for the solutions. What is the cost, if you know, to the government for people that are chronically unsheltered at this point? Because it isn't free. No, and—, and- when we created a solution called the Bring America Home Act in 1981, I'm sorry, I said 1981, I meant 2001, um, the, the, the last bill that's still in existence that still funds homelessness was 1987, so I'm not that far off, but it was about the, the, the Congressional Budget Office scored it at about $81 billion. Um, I think it's probably in the trillions now. Um, the the solution cost and and I think you know if you think about the cost of you know what HUD spends it's you know in the in the for for homeless assistance um, it's in the billions of dollars that that HUD is spending right now um, and I don't you know I'm I'm uh, have a many statistics in my head I can't remember that exact number today but it's uh, it is actually not as as robust as it was in the eighties. But it's very expensive. What I want people to understand is that these people on the street aren't free. No. So putting them in a home first situation, you got to look at the Delta because they're not free on the street. No. We're looking at the difference between the two. It's not zero versus putting them into an apartment or a house. There's a cost that's there. To begin with. And and that's one of the um, big issues around criminalization, because all of that money that's already been spent, whether it's through hiring outreach workers or case managers or intake workers, every time you move someone, you have to start that process over again. And so we're wasting dollars, not only the cost of incarcerating people, we're wasting the HUD dollars who've already been used on those people um, or the health care for the homeless dollars that go into people getting free access to health care. Those dollars are actually going out the window and, and they need to be doubled down on every time we move people. They have to restart that process. I, I just don't think like some of the elected officials, when they come up with these myopic solutions, and it's really because people are complaining, you know, homeowners are complaining, you know, it's too close to their communities. Um, You know, the reaction from, 
elected officials, especially around this time when there are elections coming up or these these quick fixes, these myopic solutions that really, you know, you have to recreate every year and you never get to anything final. You know, I talked about Tennessee in Miami. They want to put people on an island. Um, they want to move all the homeless people to an island. Like a leper community. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and it's right next to a hazardous waste facility. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, in Missouri, they made it illegal to do permanent supportive housing. So, you know, it, it there's all these, there, there's a group that's going around the country that's actually um, promoting model legislation that really, um, uh, really uh, is is not productive, which is causing harm to communities. It's called the Cicero Institute. And I mentioned them before, but they they are providing this model legislation. And even, you know, states like California, more progressive communities, one of the things they promote is what just passed in California, the, the California CARES initiative, which would allow people to be put into mental health facilities um, uh, uh, un, involuntarily. Um, so we think that that's an approach um, that, again, it's a myopic solution because even when they go to those facilities, there's no housing on the other end. So you may have uh, mitigated the issue for a very short period of time, but at the end, you haven't ended their homelessness. Well, my problem with that sort of thing is they become less inconvenient. They don't have to walk past them and stuff. But yes. that makes me think about pre-Dorothea Dix when we were just warehousing these people, chain yes. them to a wall, they don't bother you so much. You can't do that. You can't put people in chemical straitjackets. You can't put them in involuntary mental health commitments when you have no exit strategy whatsoever. What are you going to do? You put them in a chemical straitjacket and they're not inconvenient. Exactly. They sit over here and drool because you've got them so medicated that they become lethargic, but then what's your exit strategy? It's like aging out of foster care. What do you do when they leave? And that is what people don't understand is that all of those systems are feeding people back into the homeless population. Of course it does. And if if we don't address, again, if we don't have a whole government approach, which, which, which provides resources for uh, people with mental health issues, the idea of taking people out of those large facilities where they were uh, uh, chemically straight-jacketed, where they were sprayed with water hoses. Um, that was the right thing to do. But what happened is what's happening with homeless people now. The the Kennedy administration did it, um, and there were supposed to be all these community-based facilities for people. They still haven't been built to this day, and those people are actually ending up in jails um, and on the streets of our community. That is a huge part of the problem, deinstitutionalization without the resources uh, to put people in. And we're just doing it again. We're, we're making it convenient for people, um, but we haven't solved the problem. Uh, we're just making people disappear, basically. Exactly. And look, I get it. If I had a business down on the beach and I was selling souvenirs or whatever to people, and I relied on walk-in traffic, and it was my livelihood to feed my family, and all of a sudden people couldn't or did not want to walk in there because they couldn't get in, because it was smelly, and they were afraid of the people, and they were getting panhandled, and 
all of that, and that was my business and my livelihood that I worked for, I would be very upset about that. I totally get that, and I would want that situation fixed. But I understand all you're going to do is move it down to your neighbor's place if you don't come up with a real solution for this. And and that's what that's all we're saying. We want the same thing. We don't want those business owners or property owners or uh, children going to school to have to encounter people on the street. But we want it. We want permanent solutions to that. We don't want to move them to the next school or the next community or the next business. And we have to get serious about that. Those businesses go out of business. You're going to have a hard time coming up with those multi-trillion dollars to fix this. Absolutely. So. It's got to be a balance for everybody here. And part of the challenge is if you talk to those business owners and you ask them many times uh, if if they had a solution uh, and you say that solution might be that we 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 build an apartment in your community, people are going to say no. They're, they're not willing to bring the solution to their communities. NIMBYism um, is what happens in this country. And it's unfortunate um, that we still have... Uh, people who can say who can move into their community and and it be okay. Um, and if I don't like you because you're othered by any reason, you know, and I have a bias, everybody has biases, uh, but but my bias is because I, I'm thinking that you're that caricature of homelessness and not the true person that um, that is 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 in the situation. I can just say you can't come to my community, and and it's just not fair. Yeah, I was so proud to meet Ryan and Maeve today because what an intelligent, straight-up young man and all, which is so antithetical to what people have in their mind stereotypically. Every time I've gone down and taken time to walk these encampments and talk to the people here or San Francisco or Dallas or Washington Heights in New York, there are some really charming people in there that just need a hand up. You know, if you think about yourself and and kind of people that we respect in this community, um, uh, just like Ryan, who've gone through this issue, and and just think of how many people we respect that have bipolar disorder or or some other uh, mental health or behavioral health disorder. But if you think about the other successful people like Tyler Perry and uh, Jim Carrey, and uh, I could go on and on, Tiffany Haddish, there's this whole group of people who've gone through that experience, and they're people who are revered in society today. Um, and, and those people are walking the streets of Los Angeles today, uh, people who have the same degree of talent, uh, the same intellect. Uh, and if we provide them the resources, they they become a benefit to our community. Yeah, hire a thousand people. I mean, Tyler Perry's a really good friend of mine. He presented me my star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and he and wow. I are working on a movie together to see what he overcame and came through. I mean, those are inspirational sort of things. We just have to stop and realize these are men and women Human beings, like I said, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters, we just got to give them a chance to get back in the game. Absolutely. You're doing the things that I think need to happen for them to get back in the game, and I support what you're doing. I want to continue to support what you're doing. I don't think you're the king of giveaway. I think you're wanting these people to 
be responsible and accountable. I think you're trying to give them a launch pad, not a hammock. Absolutely. And that's a big, big difference. Absolutely. Because we need their voices, too. Yeah. What a talent pool Absolutely. is being wasted. Uh, in, for so many reasons. We, you know, unemployment. If we, we give people the, the resources they need to get back on their feet, you know, there's, there's your unemployment gap right there. We put, these, we put people to work and they can help, you know, change the economy and, and help heal all kinds of wounds. Yeah, I think the key is we've got to help every one of them find, it's what I call consequential knowledge. If you have a job that you can be replaced in two hours, you haven't found your consequential knowledge. Exactly. But if you can become a coder or you can become a computer repairman or you can become a really good painter painting houses, if you can become a nurse or nurse's aide, where you actually have knowledge that is consequential to the situation, then you're not going to be a minimum wage worker. You're going to be someone that can command a reasonable salary, we've got to get these people to the point where we can say, all right, let's find out what are you good at? What were you good at before? What do you have the aptitude for? Let's identify or develop consequential knowledge for you and get you back in the game. And and that's the Department of Labor. It's about retraining that's people. Right. We have so many um, seniors in the population who's Jobs have become irrelevant because of changes in technology, all kinds of things. Um, if, if we had a Department of Labor that was retraining people for the environmental jobs, uh, the, you know, the, the gaming jobs, the coder jobs, all yeah. of those things, um, just think how much of an impact we could make on a society. Yeah, I'll bet you half of that population could work in the tech computer industry and it's needed. We just have to continue to do this. If I can help you bring heat to this issue anyway and any time, put me in, coach. You you're doing it. You're doing it and and I appreciate you and I know you'll continue to do it and I'm just so thankful that you've chosen this um as an issue that you want to support because you know, I reach out to, you know, some of the people you mentioned all the time because I just think them making a statement about it in whatever small way they can, people want to be near them. They want to follow them. They they want to be attached to them. And if they're attached to the solutions, it'll just make so much difference in this world. Well, let's commit to continuing to partner on this together. And I hope you'll come back when anytime you ask me, we can do this again, because <laughs> I think we brought a lot of attention to this today. We've done it before. We'll continue to do it. And if we need to hit them up on Capitol Hill. We'll go do that too. Absolutely. I, you, you got an invitation waiting to come to Capitol right. Hill. Fair enough. Donald, thank you for taking the time to do this. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for taking the time to do it. Well, I'm going to continue as I know you will. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.